The entire timeline for the introduction of this idea parallels the eventually successful challenge by Louise O'Keefe. If we tell you this, then it will reveal what we're thinking. Welcome to the first episode of Adventures in Information, a podcast about what crawls out from under the rock with me, Ross McMahon. I said in the trailer to this podcast that I hoped it would be an interesting journey through freedom of information and the other areas of the law, government and society that involve information, which really, when you think about it, is everything. I also said I really wanted to hear from people who had found some interesting information using freedom of information. My first guest this episode is the first person I contacted about the idea of the podcast a few minutes after I had the idea, and he thought, yeah, good idea. So with that encouragement, he had little choice but to be the guinea pig. Simon McGarr is a solicitor, a litigator. He does a lot of what you might call standard litigation, personal injury and the like, but also a sizable amount of civil and commercial litigation. Some of it is quite non-standard. Any lawyer is lucky, if that's the word, to have one case before the ECJ, the European Court of Justice that sits above all our national courts in their lifetime. He's had two in the last two years. Simon's a solicitor for Digital Rights Ireland, and if you haven't heard of them, you should check them out. They're a non-profit, an NGO of the sort very common in the US and some other countries, but rare in Ireland. It's a small organisation, much smaller than any US equivalent like the Electronic Privacy Information Centre or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, but it has had significant successes in its 10 years so far. Two major ones, both cases Simon worked on, were a High Court challenge to the European Data Retention Directive that went all the way up the chain to the ECJ who struck down that directive. That's one scalp. Last year he was back again with the Schrems case, which was superficially about Facebook but led to the ECJ striking down the safe harbour system of data exchange agreed between Brussels and Washington in the late 1990s. Another scalp. Simon writes a blog and I would recommend both it and his firm's blog to you If you visit the blog for this podcast and the post for this episode, you'll find links to those. I've also included links to some posts or articles on some of the things we discuss in this episode. Simon is, in his own words, which you'll hear him utter, so I'm not editorialising, a known crank, which is good for FOI. Cranks find things out. He's on Twitter as TupEd, that's T-U-P-P underscore E-D, which I assume he chose because he's the editor of the Tuppenceworth blog. And his avatar, for as long as I've seen him there, which is almost 10 years, is a potato with googly eyes in front of a display of newspapers. So if you see the potato with eyes in front of newspapers, that's Simon. He found the right guy. Another thing from the trailer, FOI and data protection are different things, but they overlap sometimes. This story is one example of it. As well as being a solicitor, Simon is a father. And it was as a father that he learned about the pod. Not the defunct nightclub in Dublin. Something else you'll hear about. Should the Department of Education keep files on everyone, forever? That's what the story about pod concerns. It's a story about FOI, about our data, our children's data and the protection of it, about schools, about child abuse claims. That's a lot of ground, so let's cover some of it. So I just want to jump straight in and talk about something you have been active on recently. Uh, This podcast is intended to be about information which would cover data protection and data retention as well as 
freedom of information itself, which are different areas of the law, but which sometimes overlap. And are um, all interesting. It, well, exactly. And one instance of this which struck me is the Department of Education's POD database. So, Simon, can you tell us what is POD? Well, POD stands for Primary Online Database, and it's a collection of uh, information on every primary school child in the country with the intention of keeping this information initially indefinitely, in other words, forever, um, uh, there was some uh, element of pushback from parents, including myself, which resulted in this being reduced to, uh, first of all, un- with a review at their 30th birthday. And then subsequently uh, that collapsed down to, I think they gave up after the child turned 19. And so how did you come across this issue originally? You said a parent such as yourself, was it through your own role well, as a my, parent? My son came home from school with a letter um, and uh, my wife had, had been asked about it because uh, obviously if you're known to be uh, basically a crank on these matters, parents ask your opinion. So um, uh, I, w- I read the letter. It was in Irish, first of all. So that was a bit of a head scratcher. In, in Irish the- only? No, uh, some cl- schools got the Irish and English. Some only circulated the Irish version. The English was available online. I was, went online, I read the English version. Was this a Gael school that you were dealing with? No, it is not. Right, no. Okay. And I must say that the school has been superb all the way through in dealing with these complaints uh, from me and, um, and from other people. Uh, the school has uh, perhaps an unusually, uh, I suppose, just the age of the parents and so on. Um, some parents work in data um, firms. Some parents work, I mean, some people work for Google and, and, and firms like that. Um, so it, you just happen to catch a, a group of parents for whom this looked like it might be a red flag. Um, uh, to be fair, not everybody would recognize what was being said because the, the letter was, I think, three pages long. Uh, it was solid blocks of text, all fine for lawyers. But most people's eyes would glaze over as they read about data and uh, and so on. And the thing that it ended with was, if you did not do this, your child's uh, education would be defunded. Ah. Now, so as a uh, as a nice snappy endpoint, it does look a lot like something that most parents would just you know hurriedly agree to in order not to have their child's education defunded. However, uh, actually, if you go back to the start of it, in one sense, it seems like a remarkable database to set up. Yes. I mean, uh, when when I had a look and see what they were actually collecting, it was extraordinary Um, because they weren't just collecting the the things that you might think of as being. And they they always say, oh, the purpose here is just to replace the old roll books. But the old roll books didn't, for example, collect your mother's maiden name, your religion, your uh, ethnicity as defined by the department, because those definitions eventually had to be altered. They had decided that they wanted to limit it. So one could not be, for example, black and Irish. You could only be white Irish or black, but not Irish. Mm. Uh, and eventually they had to abandon that position. They erroneously asserted that's what the CSO does, the chief um, central statistics office. And that isn't what the central statistics office did. And once that was pointed out to them, they didn't really have any any more clothes to hide behind. But even aside from the issues they had with the, the, uh, the way in which they were asking for data, I mean, because on the other hand, some people might think, well, isn't this information the department would have or should have anyway? Uh, no, it's not this... something they can access freely. Uh, and there, I suppose, lies what 
Mike. Well, this is the this is the issue. This is actually data that they have a good deal of the data they were looking for. They have access to in an aggregated, anonymized fashion from the Central Statistics Office. Mm-hmm. And that transfer of data has been used for decades in order to plan schools, uh, make arrangements to make sure that there are if there were suddenly appear to be a number of people whose first language at home is not English, that there should be that should be taken into account at planning. As to whether or not those plans are then funded is an entirely separate matter. But certainly the information is available to them on an aggregated basis. And you would think some amount of it is available from the schools uh, anonymously, that they, they get some form of statistical or, and or other feedback. And doesn't invoke data protection concerns. Exactly. It's statistical questions, not... Um, no, I mean, uh, statistical questions rather than it being a question of whether or not, uh, you know, little Johnny, named Johnny, of this parentage was this PPSN number on of his mother, which is what they were looking for, um, that this person in particular uh, doesn't ha- isn't isn't baptized or is baptized as a Roman Catholic, is or isn't uh, speaking English as their first language, is or isn't identified as being white Irish or other. Um, and also with other information, and I mean, the information they sought was quite extensive. They included, they wanted to know whether or not there had been psychological assessments of the children uh, and, and matters of that nature. And they... Uh, very sensitive pieces of data. But they purported to look for this information to plan schools or to plan the school system. They purported to want to use it for statistical information. And yet they refused to rely on merely statistical information. They then said, came up with a new explanation when that was challenged. And they said, we want to be able to do studies in later decades to see how individuals carry on through their life. So we want to track them through their existence and see how they get on. A kind of a, a seven up program, but involuntarily for the entire population of Ireland. Now, you made requests under the Freedom of Information Act as a result of all of this. I did. And my requests, first of all, the FOI Act is an imperfect tool. Let us be, be blunt about it. So if you decide that you say, send me everything you have on your file, Mark Pod, they'll come back and say no. You have to be selective because they can. there's a get out where your request is, is excessive. Now, leave aside whether or not it actually is excessive or not. If you've given them an excuse for saying something is excessive, well, then they'll say it. That's my experience. However, um, uh, what I decided to do was focus on one area because when I was doing the, um, I went out on the radio to talk about this. I said I didn't think it was a good idea. I ended up on Today FM. Um, I wrote about it on the blog, and um, and I, and I wasn't the only person doing it. But admittedly, I was, as it happened, capable of making these arguments in a sort of a legalistic way, which is. Uh, you know, you might have a good feeling that I don't think this, the Department of Education ought to be allowed to have my child's psychological assessments details, but you might not be able to say why not. I was able to say why not and cite the various provisions of the Data Protection Act that would say why not. So for those reasons, I, I, I felt that I was I could do something of civic value by taking a lead on the question. Um, and uh, and so I, I, I said, well, I don't think that should happen. And and what we got was that these questions were then eventually put to the Minister for Education on Morning Ireland two days after I had been on the radio. And uh, the Minister of Education said, well, we'll have a look at all those questions specifically around how long we're retaining the data. Now, she didn't deal with everything but bit by bit. You hardly expect a point by point 
interview to go through every section of a proposed circular or act uh, on a, a morning breakfast television pro, uh, radio interview. But nonetheless, she did say something that, uh, that, uh, that I picked up, which was, but the Data Protection Commissioner's Office has said that this is OK. Oh. Now, I said to myself, OK, well. Ironically, the Data Protection Commissioner's Office is actually one of the exempted bodies. So you can't FOI the DPC directly. At all. Um, except in so far, not in relation to their investigations, only in relation to their administrative affairs. So you can FOI how much gets spent on biscuits if you wanted that, but you can't FOI questions of this nature. But the Department of Education isn't exempted, and so that's where I went looking for the... Um, uh, all documents between the two bodies which were held by the Department of Education. And your request was substantially refused initially, was it? Uh, no, I w- I, to be fair, well, first of all, it was it was refused uh, on one particular grounds, which was that if we tell you this, then it will reveal what we are thinking. This, they abandoned that ground, perhaps because it wasn't very good. And they subsequently went to another position, which was to say something quite similar, that... Um, they're allowed uh, to hold things back if it would be uh, a matter of negotiation. And they're currently in negotiations with the DPC and therefore they are uh, still considering the matter and it's not a completed entity, uh, this new circular that they had invented as they basically ran out of rope on the old circular. So uh, anyway, I mean, they refused it and they refused it again. Uh, In my experience, it doesn't really matter what grounds they come up with. Um, they're hardly they're hardly likely to be able to win on them. The one that was interesting was, uh, in the end, the DPC, it turned out, because although they can refuse you the, some documents, they do have to tell you what the documents are that they're refusing to give you. They have to describe them briefly. So in one occasion, right at the end, the last available document was the Data Protection Commissioner had actually shown the Department of Education some legal advice they'd got on whether this was legal. And that they refused to give on the grounds that it was privileged information. So I'll come back to that in a minute as to what that would mean. Um, Anyway, you always end up appealing to the information commissioner. I've never succeeded on an internal internal, uh, review. I mean, it's simply just a delaying tactic and it costs you a bit of money. But um, uh, off to the information commissioner it went. And to give them their due, the information commissioner did consider it. And they came out and they made an order about nine months after the, the, the complaint went in, I think. August, September, October, November, December, January, February. Seven months. So, so, so I mean, by Information Commissioner standard, not, not the worst uh, turnaround time. Uh, that the, uh, all the documents except the legal advices should be released to me. So what was interesting was going through the, uh, the, the documents that had been withheld and the ones that had been given that hadn't been withheld once you could piece them together, you discovered that the Data Protection Commissioner's Office had actually been offering suggestions as to how long the retention period could be. At one stage, the DPC's legal advisor wrote to the Department of Education suggesting they could think of something along the lines of 25 years as a retention period. Um, And indeed, in the end, their fallback position had been 30 years before collapsing down to to the age nineteen position, and was it um, was it obvious where they were drawing that suggestion from? I mean, yes, they what they said was, oh well, I, we noticed that you have another one where you hold the uh, data for twenty five years relating to post primary education, and you know 
why not use the same retention period for both? So, or something like it. The, the, the retention period that was being proposed was remarkable and obviously was, a core... The initial retention period was indefinite. A core principle of data protection law is that data not be re- retained for longer than it's necessary for the purpose for which it was collected. So was it clear what reasoning was going on there? What purpose it was being collected for that required it to be retained indefinitely well, or well, up to 30 state, years? Well, the stated purpose, and, and I'll tell you what I believe was an ulterior purpose, but the stated purpose was, as I say, to allow our lives to be tracked and see how our educational experiences in 30 years' time led us to certain career paths, etc., etc. And maybe there might be some statistical value to that in another 30 years. So, I mean, a pretty thin read, I would say. And so, if that were the case, if that were a genuine reason for it, you would expect it to be announced with greater fanfare as, as a serious government policy, a new plan well, or a new... You know, it sounds like the kind of thing that you expect Iceland to come up with, with their quarter of a million citizens, which is let's track the entirety of the population. Yeah, for the... A longitudinal study that yes. follows a core group. or you know, And eventually they decided that they would do a longitudinal, they would cite longitudinal studies as the basis. Uh-huh. Now, I have, I have my alternative explanation because the entire timeline for the introduction of this idea parallels the um, eventually successful challenge by Louise O'Keefe, who had uh, sued the Department of Education relating to sex abuse when she was in school. And the Department of Education had said, no, 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 uh, that's nothing to do with us. That's to do with schools. We're the Department of Education. We're not responsible for anything in schools or anything that happens to you in schools. And eventually, um, uh, the uh, decision of the European Court of Human Rights came out in uh, January 2014 saying, no, that's not okay, that's not okay. Uh, you must actually be held responsible. And, at, and in exactly the same month, they issued the first circular in respect of this database. And why did they do that? I say that it's perfectly reasonable to presume, given this, this sequence of facts, plus the things that they're looking for, plus the um, stated reasons for indefinite retention made by the school management boards up until now, uh, that... The intention is to build a file on all the children so that if they receive abuse claims in the future, they'll use that file against them. Mm-hmm. In other words, they'll say, well, here's the file on individual children, on this individual child. And as you can see, nothing we saw here indi- would have given us an indication they were suffering abuse. Um, and and the, timeline, the timeline tracks that line of thing. And of course, that explains why you would want psychological assessments if you wanted to defend yourself, you'd say, look, there were no psychological assessments. Or you could say, look, this child was having psychological problems at the time. I mean, what's, who's to say that's what's happening here is that there, is there, that there was abuse. So, uh, and I mean, the department continues to argue that they did not know uh, in the case, in other child abuse cases, even now. So, uh, arising out of the O'Keefe decision. So, I mean, uh, as to why they did it, well, they state that it's for this purpose, and but the other purpose would be very useful. It would be very useful to have all this information for that purpose of defending child abuse claims as well. Incidentally, I had a conversation recently with somebody, a friend of mine who's a parent and who happens to work in, in the health sector, uh, and I was describing the pod database and the issues around it, 
uh, and the suspicion that that was the reason or or a benefit of it would be that the department would have this you could say information uh, or or ammunition uh, mm. in its archives and he said well is there a problem with that well first of all uh you must collect information for a stated purpose. So if you're stating it's for one purpose, but really you want it for another, that's not legitimate under the law. But secondly, no, I I actually don't think that that's a reasonable provision. Uh, If it was intended that this information would be used to avoid actual abuse, then that might be a reason that you would say, well, actually, there may be a preventative role. But it doesn't appear that there's been any discussion that this information will be assessed uh, sort of as you went along in order to avoid abuse, it's only to keep it in the cupboard. And if you're keeping it in the cupboard, then it can be used in defending abuse claims decades later. And it's the decades later because uh, sex abuse claims don't uh, aren't uh, liable to the statute of limitations. Hence the requirement by the school's management board, they have, uh, they've insisted that they should be allowed to keep all records relating to their roles and their pupils and their transport and trips away indefinitely. Now, exactly how they manage this in real life, I have no idea, because holding files indefinitely, that's not even like for the life of the child. That's forever. So, uh, um, There's a logistical problem there. (laughs) There is a logistical problem. I mean, I'm I'm not sure whether we need to go back down to whatever it is that the Book of Kells is made of, goatskin and vellum. In order to make sure that we have a, a material, a record keeping material that we know lasts at least a couple of hundred years. Mm. Um, but, but I mean, regardless of whether or not that's, that's you know, uh, convenient or uh, practical, that's the asserted position of the schools. And when the Department of Education was challenged by the, by the Data Protection Commissioner uh, at one point, they actually forwarded a link to the school's provisions relating, which led to this claim of indefinite uh, retention to the Department of Education as part of the justification for their plans. So the two are not separate. They they were trying to follow uh, school's behaviour so that they too would have a permanent file. And And schools, unlike the department, stated clearly it was in order to defend against future abuse claims if they appeared. And you touched on earlier uh, the the issue of data protection and the data protection commissioner in the background to this database. Uh, the the document that you were not provided with and that the information commissioner did not order the release of was legal professional privilege. Now the position of the data legal, protection, advice. legal, legal advice. advice on the grounds of professional privilege exactly, and which was mind boggling when we get to the question of. What does that mean? Exactly. I was going to say, first of all, well, by way of background, I think the position of the Data Protection Commissioner traditionally is that her office and her predecessors, I think, had the same position. They are not there to pre-approve plans. They are not there to provide a seal of approval to government It would agencies. be extraordinarily difficult to be a viable regulator receiving complaints from the public in respect of uh, proposals which you had pre-approved. I mean, how could you then treat the complaints on a uh, in any kind of a proportionately reliable basis when you had already said this is okay? And so, so there, there, there is an interesting freedom of information element to 
the decision not to give you that document. But from a data protection point of view, this was legal advice obtained by the Data Protection Commissioner. Yes. In relation to a proposal by the Department of Education. A, a body which they were regulating and investigating. And why would the Data Protection Commissioner's Office seek legal advice on another government agency's proposal? Well, they found themselves uh, in receipt of complaints by me and others. And uh, they clearly they decided that, that they requ- needed external advice. So they, that's perfectly reasonable. And state bodies go outside uh, when they feel they need um, further or better legal advice. They got legal advice as to the legality of the um, pod scheme or alternative, if you want to read it this way. They got legal advice as to the strength of the complaints uh, basis. And then they shared the outcome of that advice. They shared that advice with the department which they were, which they regulate. And was there any evidence or suggestion of the department obtaining legal advice on the data protection issues? None whatsoever. They seem to rely for legal advice on the uh, Data Protection Commissioner's office. And the... But that said, I only FOI'd, though they didn't cite any such legal advice, I only FOI'd uh, correspondence between the DPC and the Department of Education. And so correspondence between the Department of Education and their own legal advisors, A, I wouldn't have a right to it, and B, it wouldn't be in that packet that I got. But there wasn't a suggestion no, of the department saying to the Data Protection Commissioner, well, we have obtained our own advice and no, that's what it says. No, there was no such statement. And so the Information Commissioner said you can't have this because... Yes. What they said was that the Department of Education and the Data Protection Commissioner, in sharing the Data Protection Commissioner's legal advice, were actually engaged on a common activity. They were working to the same end and therefore... Uh, the, the privilege which attached to the Data Protection Commissioner's receipt of legal advice was extended to the de- uh, to the Department of Education. Now, there's actually a very strong uh, case on this question of pr- uh, privilege. Uh, the I think it's called the ASCO case, which found that even in-house lawyers in your house who are your lawyers, if you are a large company, do, their advice is not professionally privileged. So clearly, um, it, it takes an extremely high degree of um, common purpose to see the Data Protection Commissioner's advices, which is being shared with the um, the Department of Education, as still having prof- a claim for professional privilege. And do you know, I, was this an argument raised by the Commissioner or the Department? Were they saying that... The that Department they... raised it. Okay. And they raised it with the key, the uh, the information commissioner, and the information commissioner accepted it, having had ex- the opportunity to examine the files. If they did so, I do not know, but they certainly have the power to do so. And where is the pod database now? Where where is it? Oh, well, What's frankly, the status of it? It's, it? There's not much of it left, but there's still the threat of more of it being put together uh, later. So, uh, look, what happened was. Uh, I pressed the matter and um, the Data Protection Commissioner eventually found that the original circular, which is a form of subsidiary law uh, to the schools, was in fact not, it was in fact in breach of data protection law. The department then issued a further circular 
they then had to issue a further law, an SI by the department, by the Minister for Social Welfare, because their dealings of PPSN numbers weren't in line with legislation. Uh, so there have been three new laws attempted to be passed to make this legal. It's still not legal. And uh, uh, the difficulties have only got worse for them because during the course of this happening, a case known as the Barra case was decided by the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, which is the Supreme Court for all of Europe. And the Barra case has placed new limitations on uh, states' powers of sharing data between entities. And it's also limited uh, the exemptions from the Data Protection Act, which have been presumed wrongly by the government up until now to allow them to do things willy-nilly, whether or not the Data Protection Act would or would not uh, apply if they just write an exemption into law. The most recent example of that is uh, Alex White specially passed a tiny act which said air codes, which would otherwise be uh, in breach of um, data protection law, aren't, and therefore they are exempt. Uh, and now those laws must now be examined to see whether they are necessary and proportionate, just as the original actions would have to be examined as to whether they're necessary and proportionate. And I'll be surprised if many of them actually managed to make it over that line. Um the surprising thing is that the so I, I've made a further complaint. I have two children and um, they uh, the department's threat to defund any child whose parents didn't agree to have this uh, pod data transferred was postponed for a year until my child was uh, uh, was was changed to being only applicable to junior infants. And my child was not in junior infants. He was up higher. So this was a way of getting I then would have had no standing. Then I had a child who went into junior infants, that, and so I made a new complaint in respect of her. They've now postponed it for a further year, presumably until my child is in senior infants, and then they and I don't have any more in junior infants left. They hope. <laughs> but is this? Uh, have they? Do you mean they've postponed the entire operation of the system, or just your own? They've postponed school? the threat of defunding. Ah, because in the meantime, they it, are still it, collecting all. It, the data. Yes, it appears to me that while. All of these uh, complaints to the Data Protection Commissioner were ongoing and the Freedom of Information requests, well, which wouldn't hold it up, but the, certainly the dealings with the Data Protection Commissioner were ongoing. They were still sending out forms to parents, including myself, uh, yeah. and looking for consent to the transfer of information. Yes, yes. And asserting rights over that information. And, uh, and, and the information they were looking for was not significantly changed. They still want those psychological assessment details. They still assert that that is not sensitive personal data. Despite? Despite the fact that it clearly is. <laughs> uh, well, despite the fact that it's, yeah, it's spelt out quite clearly in the it data protection acts. argue it is not, I would say. And in fact, uh, I think I think they still had the threat of defunding in, in many of the... Um, uh, they, 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 they have quietly, they continue to threaten defunding in the future. Uh, while uh, writing to me and saying that your de this defunding element is not re relevant to your junior infant because your junior infant is uh, uh, the defunding element only applies from next year. And so. I, my, my suspicion, and it's only my own suspicion, I have no uh, evidence for this, but my suspicion is that probably quite a substantial number of parents who receive these forms sign them and return them. Well, as you do for most consent forms from your school. I mean, this is the thing. For most parents, the school sends out a consent form and asks you to fill it in. Well, it's a good idea to fill it in and send it back. Mm. In particular, 
right at the start in junior infants where you're also being asked to consent to loads of other things that are totally reasonable. And and I should say that I don't have a problem with the school knowing many of the things that are being asked for because those uh, they do have a requirement to know things about the child who's in their care for hours during the day. But that's the school. That's the school. The question is, why should the Department of Education require to know, require this knowledge? And certainly, uh, when I asked for the Department of Education's basis, legislative basis for the threat of defunding, they could only find actually one legislative basis, which they cited. And that threat hangs on the general power of the Department of Finance and the Department of Education to allocate funding to schools. So were the threat to be uh, implemented, it would require the uh, agreement of the Department of Finance to defund individual children. Now, I think that's a misuse of that, uh, that section. I don't think that section gives carte blanche to discretionary defunding by the, the, the Minister for Education. So, in fact, I don't believe there's any statutory basis for that uh, threat. It's merely being used as a, uh, as a, as a threat in order to frighten uh, people. And one of my original complaints was that anybody who had agreed to this under the, under the cosh of this threat had not made this decision freely and uh, of, their own, of their own volition. And do you have any sense yourself or um, prediction of where this will end up? What will happen with this database? In terms of what happens next, the question of what will happen to this will come down to a couple of issues. One, is the Data Protection Commissioner an independent regulator as required under EU law? And will they uphold data protection law? And, and the Data Protection Commissioner to date has found once that the previous uh, plan was in breach, but then refused to take any action in relation to the database that had been built up under that illegal breach. Uh, And now uh, I've made a further complaint, a second complaint in respect of a second child. And the question is, well, what will they do with that complaint? Will they find in my favour again? And will they, if they find in my favour, take any action in respect of the additional illegally gathered material which is which is populated in this database i have to say the argument the data protection commissioner made in public as to why she took no action which was although it turned out to be illegal thousands of parents had returned their data and therefore it would be bad for them for to make their actions uh, to void that decision that they made I don't consider that to be a very strong position. Uh, it seems as, unusual. Uh, well, I mean, either a thing is illegal or legal. And if a thing is illegal, then the actions taken under it were illegal. And why they should be therefore blessed on the grounds that, okay, sure, one guy caught you out. Yes, it was illegal. But still, loads of other people didn't complain, so they you get to keep all their data. That's not a fabulous regulatory position to take i think it appears for me and maybe i'm wrong but it appeared for me and what i've read about it that the commissioner didn't appear to have any serious or fundamental fundamental problem with the database it was more the well the foi certainly showed that they're really the aim was to attempt to meet with the department in the initial stages prior to the, as they say, there was a dead zone from 2014 to 2015 uh, where there's no correspondence at all between the department and the 
and the, the DPC, even though this is the period leading up to the initial implementation. And there is only a recommencement of correspondence by the DPC writing to the Department of Education, pointing out there were they were getting media queries, and now suddenly it became a live issue again. Um, and 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 that's and it was the it was basically media attention, which had uh, prompted the reopening of the uh, the correspondence. So coming up to an actual commencement of a database, which would eventually uh, contain very sensitive personal data about the childhoods of every citizen in the country we had a, a conspicuous lack of engagement. Okay, well, look, sir, I'll leave it there. Uh, you know. Well, we leave it there. Simon mentioned near the end of our conversation there an interesting question. Is the Data Protection Commissioner independent? Digital Rights Ireland, the NGO he represents, has asked that very question and has instituted legal proceedings to find out. Check the blog post for this episode for a link to news on that case and links to other things we talked about. That's it for the first episode. It's not enough. There's much more I wanted to talk to Simon about. About trends versus Facebook, data retention, some overview points of freedom of information law. So maybe I'll have him back. There's another monster database being cooked up by the government, another nationwide, essentially citizen-wide database creeping up on us. And of course, Simon has been FYing it. So please stay tuned. Subscribe to the podcast using the RSS feed on the website, adventuresininformation.com. I welcome any comments or questions you might have on that site, any questions about FOI, issues you might like to hear discussed. Let me know there. Please like the podcast page on facebook.com slash adventures in information or follow on Twitter at adventures II or both. And of course, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate the podcast, leave a review, tell the person you know who likes information and maybe they'll join you next time listening to Adventures in Information. Thank you.